If you're visiting Incarnation for the first time this morning, and I see some new faces, uh, thank you for coming, and we're very glad you're here. My name is John Hall, and uh, as you can probably hear, I grew up in England. I'm married to Sarah, who did the children's sermon, and we've been here in Tallahassee for about two years now. We have two children, Benjamin is nine, and Miriam is seven. And uh, Sarah and I really enjoy being parents, but it wasn't so great in the beginning. Actually, we had a pretty rough start to parenthood. Because while Sarah was carrying Benjamin, our first baby, she had severe preeclampsia. Her body was going to be in real trouble if she stayed pregnant. So uh, Benjamin had to be delivered by emergency C-section uh, at 33 weeks. And for you non-parents who are sitting there trying to do the math, that's seven weeks too early. So when he was born, he weighed just four pounds and two ounces. And Benjamin had to spend the first month of his life in the hospital, in the neonatal intensive care unit. And he was covered with wires, and he was being fed through a tube. And it was an agonizing season for us. It was agonizing to be apart from him. Um, and it seemed like an absolute eternity before we got to finally bring him home. And at that point, when we carried him through our front door, we thought that the worst was over. But really, it was just the beginning. Because although Benjamin didn't need to be fed through a tube anymore, he still had real trouble eating. His digestive system still wasn't fully developed. And uh, after every time we fed him, we had to hold him absolutely still and upright, or he would lose his entire meal. And even with careful holding, he would still usually lose most of it. So he went through about nine outfits a day, and so did Sarah. And our washing machine was on a constant cycle. And despite our best efforts to keep him fed and hydrated, he still ended up in the ER a few times with dehydration. But the worst part was that Benjamin didn't really sleep at night at all. Um, his reflux meant that he was in pain if he was lying down. So he would only sleep if somebody was holding him up. And that meant that Sarah and I just traded off back and forth every night for the first couple of months. And we were basically never in bed at the same time. Now, I was working, uh, working full-time as an engineer in that season. And so my sweet, saintly wife took the lion's share of the nighttime vigils. And she was getting two or three hours of sleep a night. And after a month, she was literally walking into walls. I thought that was just an expression, but medically, if you get severely sleep-deprived, your depth perception gets spoiled. And she, she did actually walk right into a wall. Um, we've both never known exhaustion like we did in that season. And we aged about 10 years in that first year of Benjamin's life. So we look back at pictures of ourselves from before that season, and we can't even believe the difference. If you can imagine, I used to be young and healthy. <laughs> anyway, after about three months of the nighttime trade-off routine, I distinctly remember one night when I just reached breaking point. I snapped. I cried out to God. And it's not like we hadn't been praying in that season. We were praying a lot. We were praying every day for Benjamin's health, and we were praying every night for our sleep. 
But I remember this one night as being distinctly different. It was a night when I really prayed. I looked at God and I said, Father, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this one more day. Please, you have to do something or we're going to die. It's pretty much what I prayed. <laughs> and that night, Benjamin fell asleep and he slept 12 hours. And we never needed to hold him up through the night again. We have a Father in heaven who hears and answers our prayers. Just like he answered the prayers of all sorts of people in the Bible. And today we read from Luke chapter 17 where Jesus healed ten lepers and answered their prayers. But the most important thing about this story is not that Jesus answered their prayers. It's how they responded when he did. So that's what I want us to think about this morning. So it's Luke chapter 17. Um, in, the, in the Bibles, uh, in the pews, it's page 876. And uh, if you need a Bible, then I think Taylor's going to hand some out. Page 876, Luke 17, starting at verse 11. All right, so this is a story about when Jesus met 10 people who had a big problem, right? It was a really big problem, much bigger than my sleep problem. These guys had a life-crushing hopeless death sentence of a problem. They had leprosy. And we need to feel the force of what it meant to have leprosy in the time of Jesus. Leprosy carried with it all of the medical despair that we might associate with a disease like AIDS, and all the suffering that goes along with that, the certainty of an early painful death. And on top of that, leprosy in the first century made you a social outcast. You were completely cut off from other people. So catching leprosy in the first century would destroy your life. It would destroy your life. There was no known cure, either medical or spiritual. It was known to be contagious. So victims were required to quarantine themselves. They lived outside of the towns and villages in little leper camps. And if they needed to go into public places, they had to completely cover their bodies. And as they walked through the streets, they had to call out, Unclean! Unclean! That was the law. And you can imagine how good that was for their self-esteem. Not to mention their social status. So if you had leprosy, that one fact totally dominated your life. Leprosy defined you. You were a leper. It's hard to think of any disease that we struggle with in the modern day that so totally defines and destroys a person's life. Maybe AIDS or cancer come close, but not very close. So I think if I had leprosy in the time of Jesus, I know what I'd be praying. I'd be praying every night, Lord, heal my leprosy. Take away my leprosy. I would pray that to God every day. And I think some days I probably wouldn't pray much of anything else. And if I could get access to God's word, to the Hebrew Bible, then I'd be listening carefully for anything that it had to tell me about leprosy. And the Old Testament says a fair bit about leprosy. It doesn't talk about it in all that many places. The main place is in the law of Moses. 
So the whole Old Testament mentions leprosy 54 times, and 33 of them are in Leviticus 13 and 14. So that's almost two-thirds of the whole conversation about leprosy is in two chapters. So if you want to know all about leprosy, you can read Leviticus 13 and 14. But I'll give you the, the cliff notes. The bottom line is that the priests in the law, the priests were responsible for diagnosing leprosy. And the law told them exactly what to look for, what kind of hairs, what kind of skin colours. The law told the priests what to look for so they could diagnose it. So if any of you have a strange rash today and you want me to take a look at it, uh, come find me after the service. No, seriously. It was the priests, it was the sons of Aaron who diagnosed leprosy in the Old Testament and quarantined its victims. And then if their skin healed, it was the priests who had the job of pronouncing them clean. But, this is very important, the priests in the law did not have any authority to heal or cure leprosy. There was no provision for its cure. It wasn't curable. And in fact, only three people in the whole Old Testament are ever cured of leprosy. And I'm not sure the first two should really count. So here they are. The first one is Moses at the burning bush. And um, God gives him three signs to show Pharaoh. You remember this? It's Exodus 3. Um, and uh, one of the signs is that uh, Moses has to put his hand inside his cloak, and he draws it out, and it's leprous. And then he puts it back inside his cloak, and it comes out clean. And that confirms that God does indeed have power over leprosy. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the story really counts as someone being healed of leprosy. So that's Exodus 3, if you want to read about that. And then there's a more serious version of the same thing that happens to Moses' sister Miriam later on. Um, so Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses, and God judges Miriam, and she becomes leprous. And as a result, she's put outside the camp for seven days. But Moses prays for her, and God has mercy on her, and says that she's allowed back in the camp after seven days. And it doesn't actually say whether or not Miriam was healed of her leprosy, but I think we assume that she probably was. And that story is in Numbers chapter 12, if you want to read about that. So two stories about maybe being healed of leprosy, and that just leaves one more story, which is the one really great story of someone being healed of leprosy in the Old Testament. And that's the one we read this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of the prophet Elisha healing Naaman the Syrian, the story that Shade read for us. This is the only story in the whole Old Testament where any person the person of Elisha, shows any kind of authority over leprosy. So when you think about that servant girl in Naaman's camp saying, go find the prophet in Israel and he'll heal you, that's an incredible amount of faith. Does that have never been done before? She really shows a lot of faith, and Elisha rises to the occasion. Now the fact that Naaman the Syrian was the one person who was really healed of leprosy in the Old Testament, was a big deal to Jewish scholars. So as they read through the Old Testament before Jesus came, the Jewish scholars concluded that when their Messiah came, that he would heal a Jewish leper. This became one of the miracles that Jewish scholars decided would determine the credentials of the Messiah. It was such an important thing to do. So we've talked about this before, that there were three messianic miracles that Jewish scholars determined would determine the Messiah's credentials. 
One of them is to heal a Jewish leper, and the other two are to heal a man born blind and to cast out a demon from someone who was mute, who couldn't speak. And Jesus, as we know, did all three of these things. Here in Luke chapter 17, he heals not just one Jewish leper, but nine of them, and a Samaritan leper as well. And this isn't the first time that Jesus heals a Jewish leper in the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, he's already shown he can do it in chapter 5. Um, but that doesn't stop this being a deeply significant miracle. A miracle that points significantly to Jesus' identity. Alright, so that's a lot of background. But that's stuff on leprosy that people at the time would have known, would have been in the water, and now you know it too. So we can come to this story with some of the background that the original audience would have had. So there was a meeting between Jesus and ten lepers. And it happened just outside a village, somewhere between Galilee and Samaria. The text says between Galilee and Samaria. So Galilee was a Jewish territory... And uh, we remember that the Jews had a long-standing and bitter feud with the Samaritans. So Jewish people, when they were traveling down from Galilee to Jerusalem, the route goes straight through Samaria, but most people wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around. They would go along the border between Galilee and Samaria and take the long way around. So they wouldn't have to go through Samaria at all. And it seems that this is what Jesus was doing this time. Although that's not to say that he himself had no time for Samaritans, because in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has already been into Samaria to preach in several Samaritan villages, and he's already told the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus has no prejudice against Samaritans, but on this journey, he's following the road that goes around Samaria through the no-man's land along the border. And this is where he meets the ten lepers. Or I guess you could say he didn't exactly meet them. They stood at a distance and shouted at him, and he shouted back, which was probably the closest human contact they ever had. We know that at least one of the lepers was a Samaritan, because Luke tells us so. And we can infer that at least one of the others was uh, Jewish, because of what Jesus says at the end of the story. So what we find here with the ten lepers is a little community of outcasts. Mm -hmm. They're united by their suffering. And their common exclusion from their own towns has led them to form a little colony together which has both Jews and Samaritans in it. So their shared disease has overcome their national rivalry. And I think that shows just how identity-forming it was to be a leper. In verse 13, they call out to Jesus, and they call him Master, and they ask him for mercy. So we can tell that they already knew something about Jesus, who he was, what his name was, and they might have even heard that he could heal leprosy. They cry to him for mercy, for mercy. Several people in the Gospels cry to Jesus for mercy. It's an appeal to his compassion, a humble appeal to his compassion. It isn't demanding, and it doesn't stand on its own rights. And as you read the gospel, no one who ever calls to Jesus for mercy is ever rejected. Jesus healed people in all kinds of ways, 
Sometimes he touched them. Sometimes he spoke healing over them. Sometimes he told them to do something. And with these ten lepers, Jesus told them to go and present themselves to the priests. And that was an action that the law of Moses required of lepers who had already been healed. The idea was that it was the priest's job to tell you that you were clean, to give you a certificate of health, good health. And so Jesus is saying, go and tell the priests that you're well. But they're not well. They haven't been healed yet. And even when he speaks to them, they're not healed right away. They finally get healed in the going, after they've decided to go. So I want to notice that their obedience, their decision to get up and go, actually takes faith. That's a faithful decision. They're believing that Jesus has decided to heal them. And they believe that if they go and do their part and get on the road and go, then he will do his part and heal them before they get there. That's faith. And we ought to respect all ten of them for doing that. I was speaking to one of my friends this week about this passage. He's actually in the room. I didn't know he would. Um, but he says, what a great metaphor this situation is for the whole Christian life that we get going before we're healed, mm. and we get healed on the way. That's right. And that's the way it works in the whole Christian life. I also want to see what a difference there is between these lepers' response to Jesus' instructions and between Naaman's response to what Elisha tells him. Did you notice that? So Naaman is reluctant. He's arrogant. He says the Jordan isn't a great enough river. He doesn't want to go and do what Elisha said. These lepers, on the other hand, get up right away and go, no questions. Right away. So I want to admire them for their faith, even though we end up not admiring nine of them at the end of the story. Luke writes that as they went, they were cleansed. All ten of them were cleansed. All of them. Notice that? All ten, as a group, the Samaritan and the Jews, maybe there were more than one Samaritan, they were all healed at the same time. Jesus showed no partiality. They all received the one thing that they most wanted, which was to be free from leprosy. But only one of them turned around, only the Samaritan. And I love Luke's description of him coming back. He ran back to Jesus, praising God with a loud voice. <laughs> It's a phone mega a loud voice. It could also be a great noise. <laughs> this isn't a feeble response. He made a great noise. And notice that finally, now that he's healed, he can come close to Jesus. In the whole story, he's only ever stood at a distance. Before he stood far off and shouted at him, before his uncleanness kept him at a distance, but now he's clean, and he comes right up to Jesus and falls down at his feet and worships him and gives him thanks. Here's what Jesus said to him. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So where were the other nine? Sarah asked the children to think about this. Um, if we're to be most generous to them, then presumably they were still on their way to the temple in Jerusalem to see the priests, to present themselves, and to be declared clean 
as the law said, and as Jesus himself had explicitly told them to do. That's where they were. And yet Jesus is clearly more pleased with how the Samaritan chose to respond. The Samaritan's response shows a simple, childlike exuberance that just wants to come close to God and tell him what a great thing just happened. His response shows that he's recognized what the miracle really means, that Jesus is God's Messiah. That's what it means. And even that Jesus is God himself, that God has seen him and had compassion on him, and that the place to take his worship and his thanksgiving is right back to Jesus himself. So we'd say that the other nine didn't do badly. They didn't sin. They didn't do wrong. But that the Samaritan did much better. I think we can say that all ten of them had a pretty good day. <laughs> a really great day. For the other nine, it was a good day, right? They got healed of leprosy, and their lives were turned around, and they could re-enter society and rejoin temple worship and get jobs and come back to their families. It was a good day. But the Samaritan had an even better day. He got healed of leprosy, and he met his saviour. His day ended with joy and thankfulness in the very presence of God. I want to say from this that when God answers our prayers, he wants to do us good twice. Maybe more than twice, but at least twice. He wants to do us good twice. Because he always wants to do us good by fixing some practical problem that we bring to him. And he wants to do us good by teaching the truth about himself and healing our relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And if we think about that and go back to all the miracles Jesus did while he was on earth, they all do good twice. There's always some practical problem that's fixed. Blindness cured, a demon cast out, a dead person raised up. But with it, there's always another good, a lesson about who Jesus is, who God is, what God is like, an invitation to come and worship. And so often, the stories of miracles in the Bible end with this phrase, that the people worship God, that they praise God, that they magnify God. That's the end of the story. That's the conclusion every time. That's the real goal of the miracles. And when we realize that there's two parts to every answer prayer, two goods that are done by the Lord, two ways he does us good, then we also see at the same time that the second way is really much better than the first way. Yes, it's good to be healed of leprosy, but it's far better to meet Jesus and recognize him as God. Mm. It's much more significant, it's more joyful, it's more eternal. So even for the Samaritan leper, whose practical problem was one of the worst imaginable, it was still far better that he ended his day worshipping his saviour with joy than that he ended it free from leprosy. Wasn't it? Much better. And that leads us to think that this story has a warning. A warning in it that it's possible to receive the first good from the Lord's hand and miss out on the second, because that's what nine of them did. It's possible to have our prayers answered without our hearts being changed. 
Nine of the lepers were healed in their bodies, but they didn't come back to Jesus. When Jesus answered my prayers for Benjamin's sleep, I know that I was thankful to him for at least several days. But it didn't take long for the next problem to come along and eclipse my gratitude to God. And I know that so often in my life, my attention has been on the next problem, the next crisis, the current suffering, so that my level of thankfulness to God is low. What if instead I allowed his work in my life so far to do me more good? So that I think more about who he is in the light of the prayers that he's answered and remember his works and allow his victories in my life to stack up on top of each other and accumulate and to meet him in them, Mm -hmm. to meet him himself and to keep coming back to Jesus with thanksgiving, even with running and a great noise. The Samaritan leper makes me think that this is the kind of response Jesus is really looking for. So that as we follow him, we grow less and less interested in the gifts of his hand and more interested in the glory of his face. I want to close with another story to show what this might look like. And it was a very small thing when it happened. But I found it deeply inspiring, and I still do. So most years since I've been married, I've spent Christmas with Sarah's family, since my family is several thousand miles away. Her parents' house is a gathering place for children and grandchildren, and usually several other people. (laughs) Um, Her parents are very warm and welcoming people, and they especially like to make any new additions to the family feel welcome and feel special. So a couple of Christmases ago, Sarah's brother Peter had just married Naomi, and she was with us for Christmas for the first time. So Sarah's mum found out what Naomi would most like for breakfast, what would be a most special treat for her, and she made it for her while she was staying with us at Christmas time. And so Naomi got up in the morning, and she was very excited about the breakfast, and she felt very loved, and I'll never forget one thing that she said. She said... I can't wait to tell Jesus about this. (laughs) Isn't that so gnarly? But that's it, isn't it? That's the heart of the Samaritan leper. It's a heart that's full of sweetness. Even in the face of extreme suffering, it wants to run back and share the joy of the gift with the giver. That's the kind of heart our Lord wants to produce in us. So in your prayers, don't lose heart. Jesus is our only hope. Keep calling out to Jesus. Don't give up. He hears you and he will answer you. He's the one who's able to heal any disease and fix any problem. And he can even bring the dead back to life. And then when he answers you, hold on to it. Remember it. Use it to learn about him. And take the time to go back and thank him, to share the joy of the gift with the giver. Amen. Amen.